Paul is essentially going into like kind of a, a third or even more uh, hammering down, if you will, for lack of better terms, on what he just got done spending time talking about in 16, 17, 18, 19. And he, he is pushing this idea of finding your identity in Christ, not in the shadow. So finding it in the reality of Christ, not finding our identity in the shadows, not giving in to the shadows that are just simply indicators of the reality that is to come, and then in this case, has come, because it's Christ, and Christ has come, and we live in that reality of Christ. But the temptation is still there for us to give in to the shadows, to go back to the shadows. So, with that said, I just don't want you to think we're just cheating and skipping over 20, 21, 22, 23, uh, but we are not going to give a formal treatment to those, to those words. Uh, because I think we've already basically have. Okay, so moving on to chapter three, verses one through four, and this is where we're going to spend our time at this morning. Verse one: If then you have been raised with Christ. So I think the chapter division, first of all, understand the chapter division here is horrific. Okay, uh, it's just just terrible it's it's not bad in the sense that it helps us break things up but if we do not see verse one in light of what paul's been talking about in chapter two then we're totally going to miss the point along with chapter one as well we will miss the point so all of that leading up to paul says if then you have been raised with christ seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. Thank You for Paul. Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that, that You have chosen to raise us Father, thank you that we have something above to look at. We're not stuck to, the, to, to looking just on the horizontal, but we can look vertically. And what we see vertically is not just something that is better than what we have to look at here, but it's, it's something that is infinitely supreme. It is infinitely good. It is infinitely pleasurable. It is infinite in its vastness of that which we could understand. And Father, we get to look upon you. There is no veil. There is no priest in between us. There is nothing that's dependent upon our actions. Father, our actions are, do not bring us into the presence of God, but it, it is our stance, our position in Christ that brings us into your presence. And we get to look upon the things, that we get to have affections for you. That we're not left to our cold, rock-hard hearts. We're not stuck in darkness. But our hearts have been illumined to the glorious, the gloriousness of the gospel of your son Jesus Christ that died to pay for our sins, to bring us and restore us and reconcile us into this relationship with you. So Father, I just pray as we look at these words that, that we realize the areas in our lives that are lacking we realize the things in our lives that's keeping us from you. We recognize that it's not about what we give, but the fact that we, we, we get you, and it's not all these other things, but we get you. We get to set our eyes and our minds on the things that are above. And Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. First thing we need to understand about this text is that it's basically these four verses is like a transition text. So Paul just got done talking about the gospel, about Christ, basically just unleashing, if you will, this beautiful picture of Christ 
And then he gets to these four kind of transition words. And then what he's going to do is the last half of the book, he's going to slip into a, uh, basically a, an emphasis more on application. So what does this look like? Or what does this application look like in light of what I've just told you? And this is important to understand. Um, but first of all, understand this is common for Paul. This is common writing style for Paul. He'll start off with some deep doctrine, theological truth, and then at some point he switches and he starts hitting on more application uh, as we read on into the text. But it's important for us to understand this transition between the nature and character of God and then moving into application. So we've basically been talking about Christology, uh, the doctrine of Christology for the past 11 weeks. And, and you're going, uh, wow, I didn't know we were talking about this like, doctrine of Christology. Yes, we, we have, and it's glorious. Um, so much more we could say, but that's all that Paul has said to us so far in Colossians um, about Christology. So basically we went from the person and work of Christ, then to our identity in Christ, and now we hit this transition. Now we hit the transition moving into the rest of the book. So, in under, seeking to understand this transition, first of all, we have to understand this very first thing from the very beginning is that Paul is addressing believers. This is crucial. The beginning, verse 1, says, If then you have been raised with Christ. It is crucial that we understand that Paul is addressing these believers. In the first part of the book, this is who Christ is. Christ as deity. Christ as the reconciler. Christ uh, who is uh, basically who Christ is in this whole first part. And now, those of you who believe this and have been converted by it. You see the clear distinction. So this is who Christ is. And then we get to the point where he says, those of you who have been converted by this Christ, have been changed by this Christ. This is incredibly important for us to get because if we don't get this, that Paul is talking to those who have already been made alive in Christ, then you're going to believe that what he teaches in the rest of the book is what justifies you. So if we don't understand that he's talked about Christ, the one and only who can justify. Then he gets to this point and says, those of you who have been justified, all of this follows. And if you don't get that crux right there in the center of it, then you're going to think everything this over here that he's saying that we need to do is that which justifies us. And then we get into works-based salvation. We get into not the gospel. And it's very dangerous. So, Paul is talking here very clearly, if then you have been raised with Christ. The big question I think we have to ask at this moment is, have you been raised with Christ? Think about that. Have you been raised with Christ? And, and, and you say, you know, I've, I've been a believer for, I've been a follower of Christ for 25 years. How dare you ask me whether or not I have been raised with Christ? This is a good question for you to ask often. You know, I, you know, I grew up in a church culture where we didn't dare encourage someone to question their salvation. And I just think, <laughs> I think this is because nobody was really sure of it. And so they didn't want to be questioned about it. Uh, it made us feel uncomfortable that we'd have to actually beg God to show us, to confirm it. Because we just want to live in our sin, I think ultimately is what it is. But have you been raised with Christ? This is a question I asked myself this week. A couple of test questions for you. First of all, I, 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 test questions I think that will help you answer this question. First question, do you believe that you are a sinner? idolater, that you have openly rebelled against God. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're not a follower of Christ. Period. 
Next question. Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, sent as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for your sins? Do you believe that He gets our sin and we get His righteousness? We also call that double imputation, where our sin is thrusted upon Jesus and His righteousness then in salvation is given to us do you believe that Christ is, the, in, is God in the flesh, sent to absorb the wrath of God as a sacrifice for your sin? Do you believe that He was crucified for your sins and raised again on the third day? If your answer is no, you are not a believer. Now, third question. I have to admit, this third question is not so cut and dry because I think sanctification kind of muddies the water on the clarity of the, of, uh, or discerning in this question. But I think it's a question we have to ask. Do you have genuine affection for God? See, I think this question is the question that we typically fail to ask. So as long as you've signed your name to a piece of paper, you're good to go. So as long as you have given an intellectual assent to these facts, you're good to go. But we have to ask the question, do we have genuine, do you have genuine affection for God? And let's unpack this. Again, I think sanctification kind of muddies this because this affection is going to look different for each one of us. Unfortunately, though, some of us, I think, think affection is simply some sort of emotional experience. And it's something more than just an emotional experience. For some of you, um, anybody, you know, gone to like church youth camp, right? Anybody done like church youth camp? And you're like, dude, you're like, you get back in, there's that moment like that night, you know? And for some of us, it's like on Monday of the week. Some of us on like Wednesday of the week. And, you know, the band's just playing and that, you know, that guitar player just hits that one note, and it's just like tears begin to flow. And you're like, oh, I love you, Jesus, take my life right now. And you're just so high on God. And then and you get back from camp, and, you know, that just slowly starts to dwindle. And you get down to here. Um, let me give you a, maybe a, 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 just a tidbit of encouragement with that. Nobody in the Bible lived up here on the emotional experience level of Christ, of, uh, of all, you know, that camp high. Right? Even Jesus himself was in the garden at one point asking God. I don't think Jesus was up here going, dude, put me on the cross, this is awesome. Like, it's a little different than that. I think we too quickly move to that as being what we mean by affection. But I think... What it really means is this, is are you serious about following God? Does your heart beat for Christ? Are you serious about what He desires? You find enjoyment in your obedience to Christ, as Jesus says. I find my joy in my obedience to the Father. Is there affection towards God in your obedience to Him? If none of this exists, if this affection does not exist, I think you have lots of room to worry about whether or not you are saved. Maybe you just made some sort of intellectual assent. You just signed your name to a paper, said, I agree with these facts. You know I mean? Satan agrees with these facts. Satan believes Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. I mean, these are known facts. There is no affection for God from Satan only to overthrow him and his kingdom again this is going to look different for each one of us i don't you and you can't let me encourage you you cannot look at one person in the church and go well their affection looks like this and mine don't look that way so maybe i'm not saved that's not the picture and you have to be careful to not do that Again, where is your affection? You ask God, does my heart beat for you? Do I love you? Do I love you enough? Well, the answer to that is no, right? And we keep going down that road, but 
Do I love you, God? This is my heartbeat for you. Do I have affection for, for you? All of us, though, no matter where we're at in this process, all of us should be growing in our godliness. All of us should be pursuing God. All of us should be progressively submitting to the will of God in our lives regardless of how difficult it is. This is clear. The next thing we need to understand about this first phrase, if then you have been raised with Christ, is we need to understand the power of being raised with Christ. The power of being raised with Christ. I, I, I don't want to confuse you here, okay? Because I just got done asking you, are you certain of your salvation? So we want to step back for just a moment. I want you to look at this text and, and point out that Paul in this context, is not questioning the salvation of those who are hearing. Paul's not saying, well, you know, if, if you're saved, do this. Paul's not, you know, there's no kind of, uh, well, you know, I hope they are, I think they are, they're showing evidence, you know, but no, no, no. He's saying, if you have been saved, if you're a follower of Christ, this is what happens. And there's a certainty of who he's talking to of their salvation here. And so why did we take a few moments to address, are you a follower of Christ? I think it's applicable to us. We have to ask that question. Are we, and even his readers, if there was anyone in the midst that would have been hearing this, should have, been, should have paused and go, I don't know if I am a follower of Christ. I don't know if I've been raised. But I just want to point out, Paul, there is no question. Paul, Paul is saying all of this about Christ, and in light of this, if you've been saved, do this. There is no uncertainty for Paul in this picture. Think about it. Think about the, the power that Paul is referring to in these few little words. It's so easy, and I'm not going to do this justice, but it's so easy for us just to gloss over these words. But I just want you to take a moment think about what has happened in these few words. What is Paul talking about? Think about this. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We, and this is where I think we miss the mark often. We were enemies of God. We were haters of God. I was in conversation with someone in a, in a, and, and just trying to get us to understand that we, we had no affection for God. And it wasn't just that we had no affection for God. It's that we were against Him. Those are God's words. Then what happened? We who were all those things died with Christ. And then what happened? We were made alive with Him in His resurrection. We were forgiven of all of our trespasses. And it's the beginning of being restored to God. I mean, this is by far the most powerful thing that has ever happened to any one of us. You understand that, church. Do you understand that? Like, your kid is not the most powerful thing that has happened to you. That camp high emotion experience is not the most powerful thing that has ever happened to you. Joining a church is not the most powerful thing that's ever happened to you. The moment God reached into darkness, to despair, to his enemy, regenerated his heart, and you responded in faith by his empowerment, and then he reconciled you to the infinite, holy God of the universe, that's the most empowered, the most powerful thing that has ever happened to you. And what's beautiful here is he's talking about Christ, and then he says, this has happened to you, and if this has happened to you, then do these things. Let's do this. And he says, going on, he says, uh, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what he says is in light of these things, in light of being a follower of Christ, the most powerful thing that could ever happen to you, he says to live the Christian life. Now, when we think of the Christian life, we think of 
going to church. We think of reading our Bible. Um, think of often check boxes and lists, religious activity. We think of pleasing other people. We think of being a good person at our workplace. And I think that feeds in our society because we just have a tendency in our society, period, to go after kind of symptoms or secondary issues and not get to the heart of things. I think what Paul gets here when he's getting getting ready to say is really the heart of the Christian life. First of all, the heart is that you have been raised with Christ. And he tells us then very simply but profoundly to seek the things that are above. To seek the things that are above. Huh. When I was praying at the very beginning, I really meant those words. Instead of being lost in the darkness as enemies of God, He saved us and we get to seek the things that are above. Do you understand that? Only He made that possible. Your good words, your good actions didn't make that possible. God made that possible. The fact that He would do that to one of us is an infinite amount of grace displayed and mercy displayed. Seek the things that are above. So now that you have been justified, we're to set our sights on things that are above. There is no guesswork as to what we should focus on. There is no, well, do this and do this and we'll try and figure it out and if it doesn't work, then try this. And No, there's no guesswork. Just like there was no guesswork in the Old Testament. There's no guesswork. Seek the things that are above. Turn your eyes to Jesus who is seated next to God. So the goal or the objective is that after we are saved, the goal is to know Him, to walk in Him, to have Him shape us, to have Him create us, recreate us in a joy of our salvation. This is the goal, is put our mind on Him. This is why Paul, I believe, unpacked who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Let's think of it. If we're to put our minds and seek the things that are above, let's read these words again in light of that, what Paul just said a little bit earlier. Colossians 1, verse 15. This person whom we are to set our eyes upon is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. This person, you're setting your mind, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through this person and for this person. We set our eyes on Him. 17, and He is before all things. And in Him, guess what? All things hold together. The person we put our eyes on is the one who holds everything together. We wonder why our families fall apart or we, or we struggle in these areas. We got our eyes on the wrong things. Put our eyes on Christ. He's the one that holds it together. Why? We seek these things over here and seek this over here. And Look, there is no hope for your marriage apart from Christ. There is no hope for your job apart from Christ. There is no hope for your parenting apart from Christ. He, He alone holds all things together. And this is who we fix our eyes upon. 18, and He is the head of the body, not just the the advisor, not just the counselor to the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in things, uh, that in everything, he might be what? Pretty good? He might be second best? 
He might be prominent. He might be preeminent, the first. This is the one we fix our eyes upon. Verse 19, for in him, he's not done, for in him all the fullness of God was okay with being a part of it. He was pleased to dwell. God, the infinite, holy God of the universe with all wisdom, all power, was pleased, was satisfied to dwell in Jesus. It wasn't just his second choice. It wasn't just plan B. He wasn't just okay with it. No, he was satisfied. He was pleased to dwell in this person that we are to fix our eyes upon. And then what happens? Then what happens is the ability for us to fix our eyes upon is made possible. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know what? The ability for us to seek the things that are above came at a cost. The one we fix our eyes upon paid that price. And we fix our eyes on him. The one who paid the price. 21. And you, you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, enemies of God, seeking nothing but darkness, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to what? Present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What's he do? He reconciles us. Is it just to reconcile us? No, it's for a purpose. The purpose is to present us, present us holy and blameless. Not just to present us as this you know, person that, that he's made just, but this person that he's made just, and this person that has worked out his salvation through sanctification and is just presented to God glorified, blameless and holy and above reproach. The guarantee of the perseverance of those who he has called and redeemed. Seeking Christ is something that will never get old. Should never get old. There will always be more to see, more to discover, more to dig into. Paul is saying, set your mind on him. And I think where the shoes hit the road or where the rubber hits the road is, why do we have to understand this? What do we have to understand that we have been raised with God and then what we get and what we are to do is to seek Christ? Is that when we get Christ and we try to get Christ in order to get something else, and when you don't end up getting that something else, you become angry at God who never promised you that something else in the first place. I'm going to get Jesus so I can fix my marriage. And when he doesn't grant that, now God is the evil one, but he never promised that. I'm going to get God or get Jesus to fix my parenting. He never promised to fix those things. Now there is their guidance for marriage and is God, does, is God pleased and, and, and all those things? Yes, Absolutely. But he doesn't promise that. So what happens is you feel betrayed. Yeah, I love Jesus because Jesus is going to handle my crazy kids. Or yeah, I love Jesus because he's going to restore my marriage. Or I love Jesus because he's going to take care of my job. And then if you do this, listen to me. If you do this, if you love Jesus for these things, you are an idolater. You love Jesus because it's Jesus alone. So when you don't get the fact that Jesus is the goal, you're an idolater, you're setting yourself up for feeling like God has betrayed you. The fact is, He has given you all that you need, which is Himself. 
That is the good news of the gospel. We get him. We get him. The good news is that Jesus pays the price for our rebellion and reunites or reconciles us to God. Can God restore your marriage? Absolutely, positively, God can. Can God intervene in the life of your children? Yes. Can God get you through your job? Yes. Should you get upset when He doesn't? No. What do we do then in those moments? What do we do when God doesn't grant that? We default to His wisdom. The fact that He knows what He's doing. Not grow angry in our stupidity. Trust Him. He is wise. He is all good. He is all powerful. He, he knows the end because He wrote the end. So, question. How do we set our sights on things that are above? How do we do this? The next point. Set your mind on the things that are above. How do we do this? We, we set our mind on the things that are above. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's that easy. But it's yet that hard. We set our mind on the things that are above. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4, he says, If then of you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So how do we look to what is above? By setting our mind on Him. Not earthly things. It really is that simple. This literally means to consider, think, or put your mind to. So how do we abide in Christ? Think about Him. Think long about Him. Think hard about Him. Think deeply about Him. Think. I mean, we live in a culture that doesn't like to think. We just want to live by our emotions. Then we wonder why we end up where we're at. Think about Jesus. This should be like a slogan, right? We should make that our banner and parade it around church today and go, think about Jesus. Well, I'm thinking about Jesus. I'm... All right, I'm not going to go there. All right. <laughs> There'll be another sermon. I've already preached three today. We're working on the third one now. Paul is not saying to forget about the things in this life. Hear this clearly. This is not a call to meditate all day long and let the dishes go. I did mean that men and women for the record. This is not a call to love Jesus so much that you don't mess with taking your medicine or doing other things that are clearly responsible for you to do. This is not what Paul is saying. This this does not mean to think happy thoughts, to speak the miracle, and it's all yours. This is not what Paul is talking about. Instead, Paul is saying our minds, our thinking, our understanding is to be focused and informed by the things above, by Christ. So in our decision making, in our prayer life, in our marriage, what should we do? Think about Christ. Know Christ. Get to know Christ. Let Him inform the things of your life. Then you don't have to come up with no idea of your own. You see that? Commune with Him. Abide in Him. So how do we do this? I want you to write this down. Write this down. And and I purposely did not put it on there because I want you to write it down as I say it. Setting our minds on the things above. Setting our minds on the things above. Plus it gives me time to take a drink too. You don't have to write that down. Setting our minds on the things above requires a deliberate turning. Setting our minds on the things above requires a deliberate turning of our minds and affections to Christ. From the beginning, setting our minds on the things above requires a deliberate turning of our minds and affections to Christ. Almost done. In such a way 
in such a way that it becomes the shaping power of our lives. In such a way that it becomes the shaping power of our lives. One last time. Actually, I'm going to wait until you all get done writing. And I want you to look at me as we, as we say this and move forward. All right. Now, listen. Setting our minds. How do we do this? By setting our minds on the... Th- or setting our minds. Here we go. On the things above requires a deliberate turning of our minds and affections to Christ in such a way that it becomes the shaping power of our lives. Deliberate. Choosing. Everybody wants to argue, I have a free will in my salvation. What about your free will in choosing deliberately to set your mind and affections on God? No, but that's where God comes in. He's the one that's supposed to keep me saved. Deliberate choosing. Look at the connection. What is, what is going on in chapter 2, verse 16 through 23? They're trying to get them to find their identity in something other than Christ. The result is that these other items become the shaping forces in their life. The shadows become the shaping forces in their life. Remember, the people trying to shape their lives are not doing so according to Scripture. They're doing so according to human tradition, human philosophy. They're using their own beliefs and ideas and impressing them on these people. So let me ask you a question. How do you discern then the pushing of those around you? How do, you, how do you discern whether they, this is godly or this is not godly? The question, I think, pretty easy. Are they pushing you towards Christ-likeness? Does that mean that every word in God's word is going to be there clearly and everything they speak is, just needs to be a quotation from God's word? No. There's implied, there's, there's, there's further application of the text that, that says this is what Christ-likeness looks like. This is Christ-likeness. And then the next question, are, are they constantly reminding you that you can't do it and only Christ can? I think those are good couple discerning questions. So, moving forward, what does a deliberate turning of our minds and affections to Christ look like? First of all, practice spiritual disciplines. Practice spiritual disciplines. We hate that D word. We hate it in our finances. We hate it in our physical life. We hate it in what we eat. We hate it in church. We hate it in school. We want to wait till the last minute to do everything. I saw a teacher, friend of mine on Facebook. She goes, why does everyone just all of a sudden get so serious about their schoolwork when the last three days of school come about? Uh, I thought that was fairy telling uh, for all you procrastinators out there. I, I, I've suffered myself. It's, it's an epidemic, uh, you know. I'm a victim of my own procrastination. I'm just kidding. Practice spiritual disciplines. You know what? This takes work. That's why I said it's easy, but it's hard. Practice spiritual disciplines. For everyone, this is for everyone, this is going to involve scripture. If you're not in God's word, man, I, I don't know what to say to you. You can guess about God, you can create your own God, or you can humble yourself before how God has chosen to reveal himself to us in his word. Now, I think some of us, when we don't spend time in God's word, we think it's just, well, I don't have enough time or whatever. What you're saying is, I'm choosing not to discover the God of the universe through the way he's chosen to reveal himself to me. And I've chosen to make other things more important than getting to know the God who created me. You're busy? Okay. What you're choosing to fill your schedule with is more important than choosing to know God more clearly. Spiritual disciplines. Prayer. Same thing about prayer. One that I think is good for us to talk about because, I mean, there's other spiritual disciplines that we can talk about and we don't have time right now, but one is, I I just want to say rest. Rest. Some of us work too much. <laughs> Amen. Rest. 
rest. And use that time to think about Christ. Just don't let that be your only time. Rest. Now, some of you are lazy, and you don't need any more rest. you got too much. And those ones are saying, I'm busy. No, you're not. All right, moving forward. Spiritual Disciplines by Christ, for the Christian Life by Dr. Donald Whitney. Great book. I recommend that to you. Next, how do we do we deliberate turning of our minds and affections to Christ? What does that look like? And the second one is foster your affections for Christ. Foster your affections for Christ. Let me ask you a question. What are those things that stir your affections? What are those things that stir your affections? Is it a certain song that stirs your affections for Christ? Is it an epic story? Now, obviously, an epic story of the Romans conquering someone probably isn't going to stir your affections for Christ. Is it a story, a a gospel-centered story, a a great story like that that turns your affections for Christ? Let me tell you, for me, when I hear the compelling truth of the gospel, oftentimes that just hits me right upside the head and just it's almost like it just takes my heart and just rips it out of my chest like like when we were going through I, I honestly did not plan to spend 10 minutes working through chapter 1 verses 15 through you know who Christ is right there in that moment was my affections for Christ being stirred towards him and it was only because of the truth that's in his word the truth of the gospel does it mean you have to get up on a with a microphone and scream and that's maybe maybe When I hear the truth of the word sung, it is well with my soul when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever in my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Did he conjure up this idea to think it is well, it is well with my soul? No, he learned it from from the word, from knowing who Christ is. So in that moment, it's not guesswork of how should I respond. It's I know from God's word that it is well. It should be well with my soul. That's just verse 1. Verse 2, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. I was an enemy of God, right? And hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That record of debt is not on my back any longer. It's on the cross. Verse 4, for me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. Setting my mind up there, right? If Jordan above me shall roll, no Pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Does that stir your affections for Christ? I'm not saying you have to cry, all right? What I'm saying is your heart begin to beat. Does God, does your heart feel like it's going to jump out of your chest? Does your heart beat for Christ? Knowing God more should stir your affections. Some of you love God no more today than you did a year ago because your understanding of God is the same today as it was a year ago. And you wonder why you live in the same disparity and lack of hope that you did a year ago. You've been setting your mind on anything but Christ. 
Number two, foster your affections for Christ. The second one underneath that, there's not a blank for there, but if you want. There are things that rob you of affection. There are things that rob us of affection. Some things are things purposeful, and I think some of these were just deceived, okay? So let's talk about this deception. He says to not set our mind on the things of this earth. My bet, my guess, is that many of us, we rob ourselves of our affections for Christ, probably not by things that are incredibly wicked or things that are wicked at all. We rob ourselves of our affections for Christ because of things that we would call amoral, things that have no moral value. They are neither evil nor good. Now, I will say this. You are evil. And so what happens is you take these things that are not good or evil and you elevate them to a position where then that elevation of those to the wrong position, it becomes evil. Let's talk about this for a few moments. Television, not a necessary, not necessarily evil. Of course, some content is, but television itself, the idea of watching TV is not necessarily evil. Hunting, not that any of you all struggle with that, but I do. Hunting is not necessarily evil, it can, but it can be elevated to that position. Shopping, well, I, I don't know. I might say that one's evil for my pocketbook's sake, but uh, actually I'm the worst one at that, not Sarah. Spending time playing sports, not necessarily evil. I don't think that hobbies, necessarily, all hobbies necessarily, are evil. But again, I think you are evil. I am evil. Because we're evil, we elevate these things. And when we elevate these things, we cannot pursue Christ faithfully. You know how it is. I mean, let's think about these areas in your life, right? School. You have all the concentration and intellect you need to get the grades that you want. But when it comes to God's Word or a book teaching you about God, you don't have enough for that. Television. You have all the time you need to watch your favorite show. But when it comes time to reading your Word, you don't have enough time for that. Spending time with your kids. Again, not necessarily evil. You have time to take them to the park or play with them in the house. You have energy to entertain them. But when it comes time to praying, you don't have enough time to keep yourself awake or enough time to speak two words. Again, we should desire to raise our kids. We just had a baby dedication. But we can elevate our kids to a point at which they exceed God. And thus, robbing ourselves of the opportunity to set our affections and our mind on the things. And here's the thing. You think, well, my kids need my attention. No, they need you to want God more than anything. Mom and dad, they need your soul to be being fed by God above everything. They need you to be right with God and abiding in Him. Setting your mind on Him. So it could be something morally neutral that is sabotaging your depth of intimacy with Christ. So what stirs your affections and what robs your affections? This is, this is homework, right? Homework. Get into it. Romans 6, you can go look this later, tells us of a mindset on the flesh that ends up in death. And there is a mindset on the spirit that leads to life and peace. Let me read to you this quote from Dr. John Piper from Desiring God, his book Desiring God on Christian Hedonism. He says, The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. What does your affection look like? Does it beat for Christ? Do you want to be obedient? Do you want to lift your hands? Do you want to shout His name? 
Do you want to confess before the world that I'm a follower of His? Do you want to do that? Do you long for opportunities to proclaim Him? Or are you satisfied with proclaiming your own name? Moving on in the text, Paul reminds us of two things. First of all, always remember, you have died and are now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says, don't forget, you have died. You're now hidden in Christ. Don't forget you've been justified. Not by how well of a follower you are, but because of Christ alone. You died with Him. You cannot earn this. I think a sign of immaturity, listen to me here, a sign of immaturity is that when you stumble, you run from God, try to fix yourself up, and then run back. Is that what Paul says to do here? Make sure you're clean and good to go when you approach God, when you set your mind on His things? To make sure you're good to go? No! He said, just do it. You've been raised with God. Remember, you died with Him. You're hidden with Christ. Set your mind on Him. I think a sign of immaturity, we we run from God, try to fix ourselves. But a sign of maturity is that when you stumble, you run to God, and it results in more worship. I am sinful, but you are holy, and I know you're in the process of fixing me. Thank you. Moving on in the text, verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears then you will also sorry then you also will appear with him in glory he says always remember he will return one day then the struggle of our affections and setting our mind on him is done do you see that like getting to just soak our hearts in Christ the struggle of that with the world pulling us away from that is done we're there. I mean, we haven't arrived like in, in, in an ultimate sense, but we're there. Like the struggle is done. We see him face to face. So Christ has come. He lived the life. He purchased our lives and rose again. There's victory over the death. Obviously, we know this is like an already not yet kind of sense. Theologians call this the already not yet. There's a sense in which this has been realized. And a sense in which it will ultimately be realized in the future. Every act of rebellion, every bit of wickedness, every bit of sex-exaltation. Self-exaltation. There's a good blooper for you. Every bit of wickedness, every bit of self-exaltation. And sex all day, whatever that is, all of it will be laid bare before you and God. Right? It will be judged. If we look at Scripture, people much more righteous than us, listen to me, fell to the ground terrified at the sight of God. Think about Isaiah. He was a very righteous man. says, woe is me. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. So at one glance of Christ enthroned, he falls to the ground, and terrified, he says, Woe is me. John, the the guy who wrote the book of John, John says, we know by tradition that, um, that they tried to boil him alive. And it failed. (laughs) So they exiled him to Patmos. He sees Jesus in a vision and falls on the ground like a dead man. (laughs) None of us are facing being born. None of our faith, at least in general, has been tested to the point of being boiled alive. John does. He succeeds. <laughs> He's exiled. And he still, when he sees God, when he sees Jesus, he falls to the ground. There's coming a day when God's patience will be gone. His abounding love has been poured out in the elect, and it will be over. 
When this happens, he's going to crack open the sky. There will be no place to hide. There will be no lies that work. Every motivation exposed. All of our sin exposed. It's on that day that we are going to want Christ. (laughs) On that day, he will look at us and say, I paid for all of that. I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. And the list goes on. I paid for it all. We're going to want Christ that day. Why don't we want Him now? Want Christ now. Do our affections stir for Him? I have a few closing questions for us. One, where's your identity? Is it in Christ? Is it in Christ? If you have been raised with Christ, second question, is there a seriousness in you about the things of God? Is there a seriousness in you about the things of God? Are you legitimately chasing after Him, chasing Him, growing into the fullness of Him? Question number three, if your mind is set on Him, then how does that work itself out in your life? If your mind is set on Him, how does that work out in your life? It's real easy in the church to say, well, pastor, of course my mind is set on Christ. And I'm saying, how? How is it set on Christ? Is it just an emotional experience? And then adversely, I would ask, is it just an intellectual experience? How is your mind set on Christ? What are you doing? Like, you know, just put your head on the Bible, you know, the old joke, you put your head on the Bible and you sleep on it and it just all of it just kind of comes into your head like by osmosis. It's kind of, I mean, is that what you expect? Do you, do, uh, are, are you, certainly Sunday morning is part of this picture, but is that the only way you could answer this question? I'm setting my mind on the things of God by hearing the word preached for an hour and a half on Sunday morning? Like, is, is that your only answer? Wow. That can't be your only answer. An hour and a half and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and all you get is an hour and a half. That's not good. You will die. You can't live on that. Hmm. Let me say this too. God didn't design it that way. He designed us to abide in Him all the time. To study Him every moment we get. To study Him through life situations as well. But to study Him through His revealed Word and the power of His Spirit. Not just hear it Spoken on Sunday mornings. So how? How are you going about having your mind transformed? How are you going about having your heart stirred up for the things of God? What are you doing daily? If your answer is, I don't know, my question to you would be, or my statement to you would be, I wonder if there needs to be some repentance in your life. We're not talking about just, is this a better way of doing things? No, we're talking about sin. To neglect Christ is sin. For other things to be elevated above Christ is sin. Not just a better way of living or more moral behavior or just religious behavior. It's called sin. So, I I really want, I know... Oftentimes we, we end with the sermon, but we really want us to spend the next few moments in prayer. Um, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to pray some f- for Haiti and hear some updates on that. But for right now, here's what I want us to do. I just want us to keep our eyes bound, um, our heads down. I just... I want you to spend the next few moments, if you don't sing a word, you speak words to God or you ask Him to speak to you. What is the truth? What is it in your life that is keeping you, keeping your affections from God? 
What is it that you're focusing on instead of keeping your mind on the things that are above? It could be a person. It could be actions. It could be your emotions. It could be life circumstances. It could be anything. It could be sin that's keeping you. And it could be amoral things that have no sinful value whatsoever. What is it that is keeping your affections for Christ? So let's bow our heads and I'm going to make my way to my guitar, but just spend these next few moments in prayer with God.